Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you so much for your story, that it's something that we can come to and wrestle through. Um, and in the middle of it, though, it's difficult. And though it can be confusing and though it can be filled with like just weird moments that at the end of the day, we can hear your voice. We can see your will um, and know that you are the God who loves us, who pursues us, uh, who comes after us. Uh, help us to see you. Help us to understand you. Help us to be redirected back to you. And then help us to put all the pieces of your story into the right place so it makes sense. Uh, do your work today. In your name we pray. Amen. Cool. Um, so if you were not here last time, um, there was some articles that I made available that I can also email to you. Um, and then there was books. And I... We like got we like ran through all of them last time, so I got like a couple more, and I think we're almost I think there's one left, so I can order another set too. Um, you just need to let me know if you want one. Um, it's totally available. We were just doing like ten dollar donations for them. If you can't, if you don't have ten dollars, you can just you can still just have one. It's not that big of a deal. Um, so if you want one, just let me know. Um, there's one in the back left though. Um, there's also some coffee. Feel free to get it during like whenever time. I don't want you to feel like you can't um, go and get it. And then um, if you missed last week, we made we like recorded it because I knew there was going to be a lot of people out different weeks. And so we just put it up online. And so I can send you that too. But it's also just like if you go to the website, resources, Missio School of Theology, it's just like right there. Um, and so you can listen to that. And then we'll put this one up there as well just so if anybody missed it, um, it's there. Since enough people have said like they're going to be in and out back and forth. So cool. All right. We're going to be in a – we were supposed to make it through – we did very awful last night. We were supposed to make it through Genesis 1 through 11. We made it through Genesis 1 through 2. So we made really good progress going through. I am going to retry to get through Genesis 3 through 11, um, which should be faster because Genesis 1 through 2 is just so loaded full of content and material that things that if we don't get them right, we miss the rest of the story. Like you don't understand it. It won't make sense to you. It won't find its context. Um, but before we go in, I want to review three big ideas that we said. Like, here are the truths that we need to hold on to as we're reading the Bible. Like, these will always be guides or pillars or um, kind of like lenses by which we have to see things in order to read the Bible well. Um, and the first one is this. That the Bible is both a human word and a divine word. So that idea being um, that when we're reading the Bible... Um, we are reading human authors. And so that means they have a specific voice, a specific personality, a specific time in history. And so if we're going to read the Bible accurately, we have to respect that voice. We have to understand that voice. We have to recognize that it's a person, like a real person. And they're bringing their own story and context and personality and ideas to the text. Um, And so that motivates us to use our best efforts and resources to kind of work through research, study, and investigate the text because it's a human author. And so, like, for example, whoever's writing Genesis is writing in Hebrew. And so, like, one of the things that we have to do to understand the human author is translate the text out of Hebrew into English. And so that's us using our best efforts to take a human voice and make it readily available for us. But we also say that the Bible is a divine word, that God is speaking through human authors in their unique ways and unique personality traits. Um, and we can talk about how that works, too. I know that that scenario alone is like kind of a, like a, what does that mean? Like, is God, like, taking someone over and they're, like, writing down what he says? And like, I know that we can, so we can talk about that, too. But um, at the end of the day, we recognize that the Bible is a divine word. And so we're reading it, and really what we're looking for at the end of the day is God's voice speaking. What is God saying in these texts? What are the truths that he's making available to us? What is it revealing about him? Um, how do we learn that? How do we submit to that? How do we grow from that? What, yeah, what is his voice? And so it is both human word and divine word. Um, second, the Bible is a unified story about God and his mission to bring his kingdom. And so we said that there is a narrative arc to scripture. And we're reading scripture in terms of a narrative. And this class will look at it in... Um, Six acts, which is really more my way of saying how I think you can divide up scripture. Other people would say seven. Other people would say three. Um, that part's not super important. The idea that is important, though, is that the Bible is a unified story. There's one large narrative. And so that helps us because we're looking at scripture and we're like, oh, these are 66 different books and lots of different stories. And some of the stories feel really disconnected from one another. Or some of the stories feel weird. Or some of the stories feel... Um, 
just removed from my understanding of like life and reality. So I don't know how to put them in there. And so we're going to say that scripture is one story and all of those pieces fit into it like episodes or chapters into one larger narrative. And the larger narrative, the plot structure, is that this story is about God. He's the chief character. And the plot is moving his mission to bring his kingdom, which will make sense a ton today since we've set up the introduction. We'll look at why that mission is relevant and necessary. And then finally... Context is king. So when you look at passages of scripture, when you look at stories, when you look at episodes, context always has to be your defining kind of like guide and guard when you're reading it. So, and, and that's twofold. One, there is a narrative context and there's a historic context to everything you're reading in scripture. So, for example, um, Abraham does not know about King David. And so you cannot take the theology of King David and then insert that into the life of Abraham. Like, um, we learn that the Messiah, the hero of Scripture, is going to be a king in the line of David later in Scripture than Abraham. So you can't necessarily assume that Abraham knows all those things when God gives him the first promise. It's just the first building block in the story. Like, if you're reading any story, you can't assume that the character at the beginning of the book knows what's going to happen in the middle of the book. And you can't get mad when you jump to the middle of the book and you don't understand what's going on. Because a lot of context has been laid before you get to that place. And I think a lot of us... Uh, we read scripture and we kind of, because we don't know the story, because the way the Bible is set up, that it is 66 books, you just like jump in the middle and you're like, this is really confusing. I'm way mad. I won't read this ever again. Um, I mean, that's probably not any of you because you're all in here, but context is king. Narrative context is king. And then historical context is king. Um, we talked about this a ton last week, but one of the biggest mishaps we'll ever have when we're reading the Bible is it will take 21st century modern ideas of the world, modern thinkings of the world, questions that are modern, and then we'll read those into the text, which is at least 3,000 years old. And so we look at Genesis 1 and 2, and we see these creation narratives, and we want them to answer modern questions about the universe. And so we want them to answer questions about how did the universe come into existence empirically? How did it come into existence physically? We want them to deal with like Darwinian evolution. But Darwin was born in 1809, the text was written at least 3,000 years ago. They cannot be in conversation with one another. They cannot be talking to one another. They don't exist in the same time frame. And so whatever the person who is writing scripture is thinking about is just really different than what we're thinking about when we write it. And so narrative or historically, uh, scripture is not in context or is not in conversation with our modern way of thinking. But it is in conversation with ancient ways of thinking. And so we looked at Genesis 1 last week, and Genesis 1 sets up this story of creation, and there's certain truths that come out of that story. Uh, One, that there is a good God and creator who wields immense power for life flourishing in light, right? Well, now that story is not in conversation with modern science, but it is in conversation with ancient worldviews, ancient religion. And ancient religion, like Babylonian religion or Canaanite religion, believed that the universe was the product of violence and rivalry. That the gods were in, f- were in a fight, and that from that fight, the universe came into existence. And it was bloody, and it was chaotic, um, it was dangerous, and it was deceptive. And, they, and these gods are like fighting in the middle of it. And the Hebrew who's reading Genesis 1 can say, no, God has no rivals. And the universe is not the product of violence or chaos. No, no, no. It's the product of a loving God who breathed life into this place like a divine artist. And the world hums. It's not the product of violence or chaos. No, no, no. It's a good place, a good home. And so that narrative stands directly in contrast with those narratives and is in conversation with those narratives. That doesn't make it not true to our context. It still speaks truth to our context. But the truths have to be kind of understood in historic context. So those are the three... um, kind of big ideas that will run throughout scripture. We just have to continue to see those. Um, and then last week, just to kind of build off of it, these are the three like story truths that we took away from Genesis 1 and 2. And we'll just hit them really quick. Um, one is that God is a good and powerful creator who invades the wild ways to bring life and light and make a beautiful home. Um, so that's Genesis 1, uh, specifically 1, verse 1 and 2, that God is making earth into a home, a place that is hospitable, full of flourishing, full of life. That's really what the story is about. We, uh, the way I said it last week is that we always want to look at the construction of the house. But Genesis 1 is really a homemaking story. It's not so much about building the house. It's about what happens 
how do you make a house a home? Um, and that's really what I think that story is about. And then the next one is that God fills this home with inhabitants, image bearers, you and I. Royal representatives of the great God who has a mission to reflect him to the world by being like him in the world. So if we want to lay, what does it look like to be like God and to image him in the world? Well, what is the context of Genesis 1? Oh, God is creating things. He's cultivating things. He's bringing life and light to the world around him. And so if we're going to say, like, what does it look like for us to be like him? Well, that's what it looks like to be like him, to create and cultivate, to bring life and life to the world around us. And then this one, day seven of the creation narrative, is that heaven and earth are one shared space. And so if we're looking at, like, how we conceptualize the universe, I think a lot of us think about um, heaven being here, earth being here, hell being here, right? This is kind of the way that we're going to picture the universe. But I don't think that that's actually what Genesis 1 is setting up. I think Genesis 1 is setting up this, that heaven and earth are one shared space, that God has come to rest in his creation, and so humans and God live together. That's why you see God walking in the coolness of the garden with Adam, or why his presence is there so tangibly, because they live in one shared space. Cool? All right. So that's everything we covered last week. Should have hit it that fast last week. We would have gotten through so much more. Um, okay. So then we're going to move on to Genesis chapter 3. Um, if you have a Bible, you can look at it too, but I can also read it to you. Um, we're going to look at Genesis 3, verse 1 through 5. This is what we'll call in this story the inciting incident. The introduction has been set up. The characters have been revealed. The context of the story has been laid out. Now drama enters into the text. Um, this is Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did, you actually, or did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this story, super, super famous. Um, you've probably seen it in some kind of felt board visual or cartoon format. Um, it's my po- most popular ways to demonstrate the story. Um, like any good story, um, they all have inciting incidences, moments where the story or the plot thickens, and they're always about choice. And in Genesis chapter 3, the choice is chiefly about how will image bearers wield their power. So we said that image bearers, they've been made in the image of God, and we kind of described this in two ways last week, that they have ability and responsibility. So they have the ability to do things, right? They have the ability to be in relationship with God, the ability to be in relationship with one another. They have the ability to make something of the world around them. They have power, power to produce, power to create, power to love. To be an image bearer also means to have a responsibility to use that in a way that glorifies God and leads to the flourishing of others. So if we look at God as kind of the paradigm for that, that's what we see, right? Like he, he creates in a way that is good and right and it leads to flourishing for others. And so there's a, a responsibility to being an image bearer. But at the heart of this moment is a question about will image bearers wield power in a way that is responsible, in a way that is godly, in a way that leads to the flourishing of others, where they create and cultivate like their creator or something else. Um, Now, we know how the story goes, unfortunately. They do not choose to wield power the way. Um, But at the root of this choice, I think for Adam and Eve, uh, or the first humans, is is two offers. which because I think when we look at this, the conversation between the serpent and these two figures, it's like so weird because it feels so like mythological in some senses. You're like, now I'm reading Greek mythology, and this is weird. So I think if we, but I think if we can kind of like, okay, like what is actually happening in the story? We see that there's two things being offered, um, or two roots to the heart of the question, and that makes it feel way more real to us. Um, and the first thing that's like right at the heart of it is that. Adam and Eve are contemplating, or these first image bearers are contemplating life apart from God. Um, and not just distance, like not just relational distance, but uh, a lack of need, a lack of dependence. Like that they can sustain themselves away from him. 
Uh, I always think about it as the myth of transcendence, that, that, that you have enough power on your own, you have enough ability of your own, that you can transcend your need for God and become something other. Today we think about it as idolatry, like the idolatry of self, that we can be our own gods. Now, I don't think anybody would ever say that. I don't think Adam and Eve or the first image bearers are thinking that. But it is the same innate desire that I think most of us have, this desire that we don't need him. We don't have to have him. We can sustain our own life apart from him. And then in doing so, we'll be exalted and we'll receive glory. Um, I think what's interesting is that we often think of this moment. I I think we often think of sin as being like, I am... When I sin, I am appealing to a base nature, right? Does that, does that feel like, like I am appealing to my worldly nature or my fleshly nature or my lesser nature? What I think is really interesting about this moment, I think it's actually true of a lot of moments, is that the sin is actually not, it's not like appealing to a base nature. It's actually trying to transcend their creatureliness. It's like I'm not going to be what God created me to be, and I'm going to try to ascribe for something more, and I'm going to try to reach for something more. I'm going to reach for his status as opposed to my earthly, fleshly, natural status, which I just think is super interesting. We always are like, no, deny the natural, like achieve for the divine. And it's like, well, really? Like, cause it feels like that's what's happening here is they're actually trying to deny that they are created and reach towards something that they're not. Um, this is just an idea that I have and not really relevant. Um, what is relevant though is that what's interesting at this moment is that they're being offered what they already have. Um, Humans already have in this moment dominion and ability. That's what was promised them in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Where the promise becomes specific, though, is it is without God. Um, so what do they do? Humans attempt to seize power, to be God. They reject God's way. And in doing so, they reject him. And we'll come back to some of these moments in a second. But the first thing we need to look at is what are the consequences of that decision? Because this forms the mission of the larger story. Um, the first thing that happens is that heaven and earth are separated. So we just said in last week that they are one shared space, that they become, that they're just one, that God, that this earth is God's cosmic temple in a sense, that God lives here with his people. But when humans sin, when they reject God, it's like they're telling God like, hey, we don't want you here. We don't need you. Would you please pack your bags and go away? And I always think about this moment being like the story of the prodigal son in Luke, that the father gives the son what they ask for. They request my inheritance and God's like, if that's what you want, here is your inheritance, the earth and all that is in it. But that requires that these two spaces are now separate because what makes heaven specific? It's not that it's like some wonderful place. It's that God is there. That's like what makes it a place of goodness and justice. And so God leaves in a sense here and goes to his own domain. But God is the source of good and he's the source of right and he's the source of justice and he's the source of life. And so it's like, in a sense, those things go with him. And so that's why all of a sudden heaven becomes described as this place of like goodness and uh, life and light. But it's because that's where God is. And then earth, it's not like that earth can't have those things. It's just that it removes the source of those things. And so now earth just becomes, well, our domain. And it will reflect our use of power, and it will reflect our use of our ability, and it will reflect our use of how God wired us, but we've decided that we're going to, at some level, reject responsibility. We're going to reject the way he told us to do it, or the way that brings life and light. And so this place will be a reflection of how we wield our ability and our power. Um, I think that you see this separation all throughout Scripture. A lot of times we don't, I don't think we're paying attention to it, because we just think it's, like, poetic, but... um, I think God will often say this, like in Psalm 115, 16, um, God declares, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. Do you always have this kind of like dichotomy that's running throughout after this moment, that there is a physical place separation. Um, but then you also have a moment, you also have this theme running throughout scripture that that's not right. And so why would Jesus pray, Father, on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Because there is literally a separation between God's kingdom, between heaven and earth, but it's not meant to be that way. There is supposed to be a unity. And so then we come to the end of the story, Revelations 21, and what do you see? Oh, the city of New Jerusalem in heaven is actually coming out of heaven and merging with earth. So there's a unifying of the places. Because earth is not meant to be just our domain. 
And it doesn't mean that it can't be a good place, right? There's lots of beauty in earth, but it is a place that is primarily driven by our response, by our use of power. So it will look like whatever we make it. Um, so it looks like it does. Because um, sometimes we're great at using power. Sometimes we're awful at using power. And so that's the world. Um, <laughs> so the second one, the second major thing that happens is that relationships are fractured. So you have a separation of heaven and earth, and then you have a separation of relationships. Um, and first and foremost, our relationship with God is fractured. But next, our relationship to one another is fractured. And you see it almost immediately in the story of Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve feel shame for the first time. Adam blames Eve for his own personal guilt in the fall. The next story is Cain and Abel. Um, Cain kills his brother Abel. One of the next stories is of a dude named Lamech, who is Cain's son, who enslaves women and treats them like property and brags about his violent gestures. And so you just have this kind of like sin enters, relationships are being fractured, and then you have this like downworld spiral of how relationships and how people treat one another. Um, it was They lived in unity. They lived in equality. They lived as teammates here. And then as the relationship spirals, shame, insecurity, uh, you know, brokenness that happens in marriage to murder, to murder and slavery. And you're just like watching the story go like, oh, this is what it looks like when humans wield power against one another. This is what it looks like when relationships are fractured. Um, I think the primary place that we'll see this is so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, God is like just telling people what are the consequences of sin. He's like, you've sinned. This is what it's going to look like. And there's this really weird moment where God is talking to woman and he says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, I think this moment is super weird because if you read most textbooks, like theology textbooks or biblical studies textbooks, they'll have this moment like in there. It's like very popular to talk about it. But the way that it's most often described, and I, I, I just like doesn't make sense to me, is um, that woman has evil intentions and she's like supplanting her husband which i feel so weird because if you read the text i don't know where you see that your desire should be for your husband and he shall rule over you and i think if we look at history that doesn't make sense Uh, i think if we look historically who has been mistreated men or women oh women like by far like (laughs) by far like let's talk about how often white men are enslaved like very rarely um (laughs) let's talk about how often women get to rule kingdoms or or families or heritages they they, or how often they get to take more than one husband for example like they just that's not historically accurate and so i think that this is god is saying like here's one of the consequences of the fall that there is a fracturing in relationships and there's a fracturing specifically between men and women and women will i think this is the way they should read women will desire equality but men will wield power in irresponsible ways and dominate um which feels historically very accurate to me Uh, way more accurate than women want to supplant men Uh, i think that i really believe that's a response to feminism of like the early 20th century that theologians were like no women are wanting equal pay this is about them being evil like that's what i think is happening (laughs) like i i don't i mean i can't like argue for that for certain but i do think that's what's happening here Uh, i think this is yeah this is a description of what happens if we're talking about image bearers or, or power wielders relationships are fractured oh it makes sense to me that someone would wield power and dominate someone else in a relationship of course it does um and so i think that that's just an example relationships are fractured then there's a third way. Uh, so we have heaven and earth are separated. Human relationships are fractured. Now, okay, hold on. Hold on to that idea of Genesis 3.16 because I actually think it informs quite a few other moments uh, in the story. So I think we're going to come to Noah's story and we're going to come to the flood. And I think Genesis 3.16, women being dominated, I think is at the heart of what's going on in that text. I think why God intervenes is because of that. Uh, so we'll get there in a second though. Um, yeah, so relationships are fractured. And then finally... Um, in a big sense, um, our relationship with the world, the physical earth, is fractured. Um, so, and, and there's two senses to this. One, um, the world does not work quite like it should. So we have um, disease, and we have sickness, and we have um, physical ailments, and we have natural disasters. I think all of those are signs of sin in the world. Um, but there's also another thing, uh, and as, again, as God is reading out the consequences... Um, he says in Genesis 3, 
17. Um, uh, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall... In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and the dust you shall return. So we said in Genesis one twenty eight that the way humans are going to image God is by creating and cultivating, by working, by accomplishing. And so now God is saying that there is a fracturing of that commission, of that type of relationship where once before you would have dug your hands in the the dirt, you would have made something and life would have flourished. But now it's going to be difficult. Difficult at a whole new level where once flowers came, thorns and thistles came. So you'll still produce good food. You'll still make things, but the workload of it intensifies. The difficulty of it intensifies because sin has worked itself or evil has worked itself into the things that we make and build. And so there's a sense of futility, the sense of... um, intense effort, the sense of difficulty. Uh, and so it'll, it'll affect our work. And I think at the same time, it will also mean that what we build and create will be always a bit amiss. So we'll wield power in the construction of projects in irresponsible ways. Um, there's this, uh, I, this is a quote by a theologian named Anthony Hokuma, who I think just sums this up really, really well. Um, he says, Having forgotten that humans were given dominion over the earth in order to glorify God and to benefit fellow man, man now exercises dominion in sinful ways. They exploit natural resources without regard for the future. They strip forests without reforestation, growing crops without crop rotation, failing to take measures to prevent soil erosion. His factories pollute rivers and lakes. His chimneys pollute the air, and nobody seems to care. His discovery of the secret of nuclear fission, instead of being a boon to humankind, has become a bone-chilling threat that hangs over the head like the sword of Democles, which is a Greek mythology character. So this idea is being like, like humans are commissioned to make things, to create culture. We said last week, I like to always sum it up by saying from sharp, sharp sticks to Star Trek, like to push the boundaries of reality. But now you're creating and there's a sense of what you create can be really damaging, right? What you create can cause intense destruction. And so you can build institutions that are meant to end injustice and yet they can cause it. You can build inventions that should save the world like nuclear fusion and yet it can become a bomb. Um, I always think about like the Wright brothers. They build the airplane because they want to traverse the world and connect the and connect the world together and yet um one of the right brothers i can't remember which one lives to see the nuclear bomb drop from an airplane and you see there's just a corruption there's a there's a there's a twisting to the things that you make even the best intentions can be twisted and changed even the best tools can be twisted and changed and we will create in a way um that is often power outside of responsibility um ability outside of god's way um and that will cause destruction, that will cause pain, that will cause damage. Um, and since the worlds are separated, like fracturing of relationships, fracturing the earth, wielding power out of responsibility, that's all happening here. And so we're living in the midst of that. So the more that we do it, and the more that it has long-term effects, the more that this place um, reflects that, and the more that it becomes difficult or challenging or um, a reality. Um, any questions about that? I'm gonna, I want to talk about Evil, the serpent, and the tree. So we'll hit that in a second. But uh, any questions before we... Don't look at that yet. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Cool. Um, if you ever think of a question, you can email me or we can talk about it afterwards too. Um, so going back just a second, um, the story is... So I think if, we're, if we look at the truths of the story... Totally makes sense. But we still have to deal with some of the, like, the context of the story, which is like, why is there a talking snake? And, and stuff like that. Um, like, and what is the tree? I, we always, it's like, what, why is there an evil tree in the garden? That's like a great question. Um, so I think the first thing, again, that we always have to remember is our three rules. Uh, and context is king is the third one, right? So we have to remember that this story is being written to an ancient people, and it is in conversation with ancient people. So that helps inform how we think about the story because certain imagery will have been familiar to the people of Israel. So if the early date of this, if Genesis, if the writing of Genesis 1, if we take that early date, then this is being written as the Israelites are entering into Canaan, the promised land, right? And so they're entering into a foreign land 
surrounded by tons of other religions, and they're coming out of where? Yeah, they're coming out of the desert, and we're right before that. Egypt. So you have a serpent in this story, and you also have serpent imagery all throughout Canaan and Egypt, which is really interesting. And so, like, I was going to draw this. I, I'm an awful artist. I'm not going to draw that. Um, uh, I just wish. I love all of artwork. All right, so there's lots of pictures. Um, this is Pharaoh. This is his staff. Um, he has a headband that he likes to wear, and on that headband is a snake. Um, that's a snake. Um, we also said that ancient mythology had this understanding of the universe. We said this last week, that this, the world stands on pillars. And what lives in the pillars? Oh, a huge snake. Yeah. The Leviathan. A.K.A. Trogdor. Um, um, yeah, so you have... So Pharaoh, who is the nemesis of God's people... His primary symbol that he wears around is a serpent headband. Then the chaos monster, the the antithesis to life and order in ancient mythology is a serpent. And so serpent imagery is going to be, is highly reflected in ancient culture. Um, Highly known. So if you would have dropped like serpent, I'm trying to think of what would be similar. It would be like, um, it might be like referencing the Joker today. Um, after after all the Batman movies came out, like we know that it is a villain, and no matter who's playing that character, it's always a villain, right? And the, or maybe there's just certain symbols of villains in movies that there would be like, you know, like the way they walk and the music that plays. Like mentioning the serpent in Genesis chapter one would be playing villain music, and it would be uh, referencing all the things necessary to point towards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be like the, it'd be like the Imperial March from Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. That's great. Um, it's 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 referencing this, the 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 villain of creation, um, and so it's it's a culture symbol, um, and it is a culture symbol that is being used, I think, to introduce a creature or character that is going to run throughout the narrative. Um, um, but with very little detail given. Now, this is important. Um, this character will, this serpent character will be given lots of titles throughout the biblical narrative, um, but very little will be known about this character. And so I think that's important to know because um, historically, I think Christian theology has taken this character, read scripture in weird ways, and then built a lot of bad theology into what we think or understand the Satan character is. Um, I'm not saying there's not theology of it. I'm not saying there's not a building, and we'll look at it as we're kind of like continuing to read the story. Um, but I just think there's a lot of things that we don't know. And, and so this is the introduction of that antagonistic character, but with little detail later. Later titles will be given, um, but certain, like um, Lucifer, Devil, Satan, those are all titles. They're not names. They all mean, um, they mean accuser, um, liar, manipulator. They're all titles. And as we look at, um, this kind of like development in the Old Testament, which maybe we'll, we'll glance a little bit. Um, this character is way more often viewed, not very personably, like, but way more like a like this kind of like character, this like lawyer character who stands before God and accuses things, um, accuses people. Um, but yeah, it's way more of like a, just, you, don't, you don't get a lot, and then you get more in the New Testament, which is helpful, but... Um, the question is always, um, did God create it? So we have, like, there's this evil creature, this uh, supplanter, this serpent. Did God create it? Um, now, I'm going to say no right now, but I want to answer one more question, then we'll talk about just evil in general. Um, so no. Um, because as we looked at Genesis chapter 1... We saw everything that was being created and named, um, and it is this unified space, and everything there is good and right and, and holy. And so we don't have this, like, we talked about this a little bit last week, but we don't have, like, we always think of, so we have the serpent, and he's the devil, and in, like, Christian theology, he lives in this prison place down here that's all fire, 
and we're like, well, God must have created that in Genesis chapter 1. He must have created that early on. But we just read Genesis 1, and this isn't here yet. So we don't have, we don't have that piece of the narrative yet. So we have to say that, no, God did not create something that was evil. Um, the next thing, just before we go on to what is evil, is um, looking at the tree. So we have this, like tree of good and evil in the middle of the garden and we're like this tree has evil fruit um so the question is is the tree evil or what is the tree like is the tree an evil fruit giving tree uh, what do you think i've talked a lot what do you think is there an evil fruit giving tree or is the tree giving evil fruit to you poisonous fruit is it like snow white is that what the where she eats the apple yeah. great nailed it I don't think the fruit's evil. I think, I think God gave him a choice right away because um, um, he, he created them right away with um, the freedom of choice. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, I don't know. In the big picture, um, he, I would guess he kind of had to so that his plan would would play out the way he wanted it to, the, the way he seen it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that statement that the... The, the way I always say it is the tree is symbolic of choice. Um, I have a question about the serpent. Are we going with God did not create the evil serpent? Mm-hmm. I might have misheard the passage wrong, but didn't say of all of God's creations, the serpent was the most something? Yeah, no, that's a great point. I do think, so let me just come back to that. So I want to talk about the tree, and then we're going to talk about what evil is in a second. Uh, but I totally want to hit that. Um, yeah, so I would say, connecting the dots here, that the tree is symbolic of choice. And so what we've just seen is that humans are wielding power. They're choosing how they're going to wield their power. They're choosing how they're going to live in the world. They're going to choosing how they're going to relate to God. And they choose to reject him. And so I think the tree is symbolic of that choice, just like the choices that we make every day when we decide whether we're going to... Um, live according to the way of Jesus or reject the way of Jesus and choose the way of self. That, at, the, at the end of the day, that's what's happening in Genesis chapter 3. It's not unique to, our, like, to their circumstance. It looks unique because you have all these like, crazy pictures and images that are happening. But at the end of the day, it's the exact same question that we get every single day. Who gets to be Lord of our life? We or God? That's the question that's being asked. And the, the tree, I think, is a symbol of that choice. How will you do it? And, and just like in our own life, you could say that there's lots of symbols of that choice. Like, um, how do I treat my spouse? Um, do I get road rage when I'm driving? Because that means I'm actually putting myself at the center of that situation above God and above the other person. And so, like, in that situation, say this story was told today, uh, the symbol could be road rage. Um, unlikely, but it could be. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just a, it's a question of who gets to be Lord in your situation. Um, okay, so tree, serpent, Evil. That's really the larger question, is where does evil come from? Because um, that informs this question about the character. It informs this question about um, how things go so, so poorly. Um, now, I'd say, first and foremost, um, evil is not created by God. Because I'd say the evil is not a created thing. Um, and that's probably the most important way to think about it. Evil is not a created thing. I would say it is a changing or a twisting of things. Um, because at the root of what we consider evil or what the root of things that we consider bad or even bad actions, at the end of the day, they are, they are twisted good actions, I think is what you could say. Or maybe you could say even twisted neutral actions. Um, good is what is connected to um, the creator and his way. And so we've talked about responsibility and ability. Um, so I'd say that good is what's connected to responsibility, to the way that you use your gifts, the way that you use your power. And so, for example, um, um, oh, that's obnoxious. For example, um, let's, talk, yeah, oh, for, let's talk about sex. Uh, thanks, Madonna. Um, <laughs> you can't say that and then not think about that song. Um, so we would say that sex is good, healthy, right, when it happens, right, in covenant relationship. Um, a place of safety, a place of intimacy, a place of security, um, where you know your partner is there the next day, where you know um, 
where you feel trusted, where you feel secured, where you feel loved. Okay, so we'd say, like, that's a good, right use of that power, because sex is power. And so we'd say, that's a good, right use of that. And it can lead to intimacy, it can lead to joy, and it can lead to um, multiplication. And so that's flourishing. That's true biblical flourishing. And so that can happen in covenant union. But what happens when you take sex and you rip it from covenant union and you use it in other ways? Well, you get things like um, shame or insecurity or abuse or coercion or lust or pornography or even rape the more that you push how this power is wielded outside of responsibility and so but at the end of the day you're still looking at the gift of sex you're like this is a gift it is a power and so when it's used inside of covenant union it leads to life and flourishing remove the confines and it is now causing destruction it's like fire in an oven right in one place it does much good it creates much good Uh, it bakes it creates food whatever Removed from the oven, it burns the house down. And that's how all powers are. I think that's how all gifts are, really. If we're looking at anything in um, the biblical narrative, that's how that happens. When you take the gifts of God, the power of God that he's given to image bearers, you remove it um, from the confines or responsibility or covenant of God, um, and it gets used otherwise. Um, How many people here have read or seen Lord of the Rings? Oh, great. Okay, this is perfect. So, there's these characters. This is enough. That's all you need. Even that was enough for me. Um, there's characters in Lord of the Rings called orcs, right? And they're like the, the villain character. They run around and they, like, kill things. So, if you read, if you get super nerdy and you read the Cimmerillion, which is, like, the Bible to Tolkien's work, you find out how they were made. Um, they cannot be created, because evil can't create things. They're a twisting of elves and men. And so you're like, so the idea of being Morgoth, who's like the ultra bad guy before Sauron shows up. Whoa, it just revealed how nerdy I can get. Um, <laughs> don't tell anyone. What? What's his name? Morgoth. Oh, Morgoth. Yep. Um, he takes the things that were created by the creator of the universe and twists them. And that's how he gets these like evil halfmen who run around and do things. And I think that actually is a really good metaphor for what evil is. It is a twisting. Um, it is a it is a changing. Yeah, like a zombie. Got a question? Mm-hmm. Sorry. No, go hit it, man. Um, I heard theologians say once, um, sin is to creation like rust is to a car. Like yeah, it's, great. It's a deterioration. Like there's nothing that's totally rustic. If it, if it is, it's not there. Yeah. Uh, so it's like the car and the rust on it, or like mop holes to a garment. Um, totally. Which I thought was a really good analogy, and it makes me think of when Jesus says later on in the New Testament. Take a cross, deny yourself. Mm-hmm. And people say, self-denial, Christianity. And the question is, denying what? Like when people start to say, well, that means deny, mm-hmm. you know, like don't sleep on a mattress or starve yourself or don't have sex with your wife. And I think it's very crucial. Like I'm constantly trying to make a, make a delineation between the two. Like mm-hmm. what do you mean deny yourself without falling into false asceticism? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like is creation evil? Should I feel guilty when I go to the movies? Well, no. The movie's mm-hmm. not evil. You know, the corruption mm-hmm. of it is. But I think that that's like a thing that's very easy to fall into. Jesus told me to deny myself, so I'm not going to eat chocolate anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to throw the baseball <laughs> to my kid. Like, I've heard people that fall into that, and I want to be like, I'm not, I'm not sure that's what that means. Mm-hmm. But I think it all comes back to what is creation, Christianity 4 4, everything God created is good. Yeah, totally. So. Totally. I think it's a great point. Um, there's a moment in. Um, Galatians chapter 6, we have the fruit of the spirit versus the um, fruit of the flesh. And I think this is like a really good, so you have like um, two kind of like pathways of existence. And I think, I always like to describe it as like, um, one is um, fine dining. The other is uh, Mickey D's. Um, Both of these things will deal with hunger, Right. And Mickey D's is significantly cheaper and significantly easier. But you also get the mix sick, which is like the worst thing ever. Right? Fine dining, more expensive, sometimes harder to get. Um, sometimes you work more for it, you have to wait more for it. But you can eat and eat, and it's way more rewarding. Even when you get sick, you don't get mix sick. You get like, that was so good, I can't eat it anymore, but I want to eat more. And I think that if we're looking at the 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 line between what are you denying yourself and what are you pursuing it's kind of like this in my mind like there is habits practices things in the world that will satiate god-given desires 
Um, but they will give you mixed sick. They're cheap and they're easy. And they're outside of God's covenant. So like this is, this is sex outside of covenant union. But then there's things that are way better. And they're, they're, better, they're better tasting. They're better pleasures. They're better joys. But it is harder work. Um, which is sex inside of healthy covenant relationship. This is harder to get to. No doubt. Um, but it is way better for you. Um, and I think that's, yeah, I think that's, I love that you brought it up. Like, uh, this is, I think now, now that these things are divided, this is kind of like the world that you're like, which pleasure do I choose? Um, and, and then this makes denying yourself easier because you recognize I'm not denying myself because there's no joy coming. I'm saying that I'm going to deny myself McDonald's because the meal at, um, the fine dining restaurant is just better. I don't want to ruin my appetite. And I don't want to ruin my stomach with lesser things. Um, so, yeah. And I love that you said that it's like rust. The way I always think of it is like parasitic or cancerous. Yeah. For rust to exist, this is a great example. You have to have like the thing it's rusting on. Right? So, like rust doesn't exist in and of itself because the thing would be gone. It doesn't just float around the universe. Um, now, there's probably like some chemistry there that I don't want to get into. Because <laughs> my degree is in a long dead people group who didn't know chemistry very well. Um, so, don't challenge my chemistry knowledge. Um, yeah, but like, like parasites, cancer, they have to live, rust, they have to live on a thing that actually exists. Um, and then they twist it and change it and utilize it for their own purposes. And I think sin is exactly that way. Um, evil enters the world and lives, or evil is living off of those things. It's a twisting of those things. Um, totally. Um, so that's where you get those things. And then... Um, I guess this is actually the answer to your question. So going back to your question, I think those imagery are, are symbolic of um, this character. Um, so I was thinking I was going to get a better answer to your question while we talked about evil. And I was like, actually, I don't think they're necessarily 100% connected. I think this is symbolic of a, symbolic of a villain from cultural imagery. So, um, uh, Okay, yeah, so, so sin is... Um, evil is the thing that twists um, and I think it's rooted in that same thing that we've seen happening in Genesis chapter 3 it's rooted in uh, the, the statement that I don't need God that I will be Lord of my own life um, and I think if we think of anything that causes pain or injustice in the world that's what we can see um, dictators wield power in a way that is idolatrous and self-exalting uh, abusive husbands wield power in a way that is exalting to themselves and their own identity uh, Oh my god, is it already 9.57? Yep. Holy crap. Um, Are we not through three yet? No. Nope. <laughs> so bad. Um, How long is this six-week class? <laughs> that is a great question. I'll just have to like, be in my office like recording like middle ones and just like sending them out so we can get through it. Um, so hold on, just before we go, so as we keep reading, as we keep reading the story, you have this, you have this twisting of things. And so... Um, here is, here is, this is where the story starts. This is Genesis 1 and 2, right? God has created a good world, a good home. Um, after Genesis chapter 3, you have the downward spiral. Um, so here is, we'll say this is Genesis chapter 3. Um, humans reject God, turn away from him. And then the next couple of stories are, um, they're just further, they're, they're examples of what happens when you reject God and choose your own way. And so you get the first story of um, Adam and Eve, which is, you know, you get shame, insecurity, a brokenness of their relationship. You get Cain and Abel, um, murder. You get Lamech. Um, and then you get this really interesting moment, which is actually a really boring moment. It's Genesis chapter 5, which is a genealogy. And I know we love genealogies. Um, mm-hmm. Um, but genealogies are, are, are ultra important in scripture. Um, when we think of genealogies, we always think of them in the terms of, uh, like my grandma built a thing on ancestry.com and it connects all the dots between our family, right? And like, that's a genealogy and that is a genealogy, but it's not a Hebrew genealogy. The Hebrew genealogy is all about theology. It's all about statements that you make about the world around you, um, so, like, I would suggest that even, like, um, like the order of names, the, um, it's, the, the, the person is not concerned as much about chronology uh, or, like, even, like, because their point is not to detail the family, really. It's to tell you something about the world around you. Um, genealogies also, throughout Genesis, will do this thing. Um, 
the word that we use to translate, um, like in, in Genesis chapter 5, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. The word generations is, a, in Hebrew, it's totally dote, which could also be translated, this is what became of. Um, and so it's way more of like a, here's, here's what became of the people of the earth, or here's what became of Adam. Um, so we're going to make a theological statement about Adam. We're going to show it to you through this listing of names and these statements that are put together. Um, they often also act as chapter ends. Um, so Genesis 5, in a sense, is chapter close and introduction. So Genesis 1 through 5 is kind of like one section according to the writer of Genesis. And then 5 to 10, I think, will be another section, um, which then will lead into some other stuff. And if we're looking for, I think, the key theological truth that's running throughout Genesis 5, and this is important, is that as you read it, everyone dies. Which is weird, because, again, who is Genesis in conversation with? Other ancient worldviews. And if you read Babylonian um, um, genealogies, people live thousands of years and they never die. Here, they all live actually relatively short periods of time compared to Babylonians, and they all die. And so it's like the writer of Genesis is telling us the consequence of rejecting God. Um, that Adam, who was an image bearer, should have lived in union with God, who should have lived in relationship with God, he died. And his children died. And their children died. And everybody died because this is what it looks like to reject God. This is the consequence of the world outside of God's um, goodness and mercy. Um, and so you just get that. And then you come to the very end. Um, um, after Noah, it was 500 years, Noah fathered Shem and Ham and Japheth. And that's the end of Genesis chapter 5, and it leads us into um, a new section of the story. And it is 10.01. Yep. <laughs> yeah, killing it, everybody. Killing it. This class is going to end up being the story of everything part 1, Genesis 1 through 11. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. Um, Genesis 1 through 11... I know it's like a lot of time for a short amount of, of chapters. It's hard, though, for me to um, overemphasize the importance of these first 11 chapters of Scripture. Because I think that more than any other place, they set the context for the rest of the story. So everything, I think, later is going to be an answer, really, in a sense, to these first 11 chapters. So you have the fall, um, and then you just keep, you just, like, you see the spiral. I want to go, let's see. Oh, let's go these real fast. Um, and yeah, so like you, we have, so here's the consequence of the fall. Heaven and earth have been divided. The power of evil has been unleashed into the world through humans, fracturing relationship with God, each other, and our mission. And so we went, we, what did we say the story of God was about? What's the story of God and his mission to bring his kingdom? And so this is all now kind of being set up for us. Like, why does God have to have that story and that mission? Oh, because these things have been separated and injustice has been unleashed in the world and humans are wielding power outside of God's confines. And what will he do about it? Now his mission begins, and that begins in Genesis chapter 12. So, um, cool. Um, any, any questions? Uh, we ripped through, we still ripped through a lot, even if we only looked at Genesis chapter 3. Cool.